Welcome to the Return to Truth podcast, defending the Bible's message on things people don't like to hear. I'm your host, Joshua Cretchen, BTH from Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. My hope is that through this resource you will grow in your confidence to explain and stand firm on what the Bible says when you are confronted by questions, doubts, and clever arguments. So now let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth. Hey all, and welcome back. We are heading into July, which I know can be a busy season for a lot of people, even if that's just in terms of travel plans or vacation. But, you know, maybe as you're traveling wherever you are or going on your road trips, you can tune into this podcast and engage in some good, thought-provoking questions about what the Bible says. And I do want to say thank you to those of you who are tuning into this episode and also to those of you who have been here right from the beginning with episode one. And then also a special thanks to those of you who have sent me feedback on this podcast given me encouragement or told me things that you liked about certain episodes. And I do want to put your feedback to good use and hope that with that, I can continue to bring you good, solid, and biblical content. But yes, today it is episode five of the Return to Truth podcast, and we are dealing with what you might say is a more somber topic if you don't consider the previous episode somber already. But this question in particular is one that can raise higher emotional stakes for people, and that is the subject of hell. Now, of course, that's not a super pleasant idea to be thinking of. And I mean, there's a reason that as a society, we've kind of co-opted the word hell to just refer to any of our miserable situations. But my problem isn't so much in acknowledging the idea that this is an unpleasant subject, but it's when we try to shortchange that unpleasantness or try to compromise what the Bible says about how terrible a place hell is just because we have some emotional problem with the idea that this place exists. And you know, I've met a lot of people over the years who have tried to compromise the doctrine in uh, various ways, some of them weirder than others. Uh, first of all, when I was in high school, I had this friend who, well, among other things, said that he had this plan that he, if he could garner enough support, then he could approach God with a different plan of salvation, one that would lead to the reconciliation of everyone and everything in the universe, and that, you know, with enough support, he could actually change God's mind and change God's plan of redemption. So maybe you haven't heard that spin before, because it's not that he was actually denying what God in the Bible says his plan of salvation is, and that not everyone does get saved in the end, but he was actually thinking that he could change that with enough support. And I do think one of the reasons he was uh, arguing for that type of thing is because he is a child of uh, divorce and seeing the split in his family, I think, affected a lot of his thinking. And so he started, it started impacting his theology in terms of viewing the whole universe, whether it be righteous and wicked people or even the devil and demons, all as one big family who had been split asunder. And his mission was to bring them back together. So you can kind of see how his life experience impacted his theological thinking. But I mean, this guy also told me at one point that he thought he was the Antichrist. So that might uh, also tell you a little something about the kind of doctrine he's bringing at you with that. So that's uh, one story I found. Uh, then later in high school, when I was in my English class, I had an atheist classmate. And we had a number of religious discussions, but I think it was before he... I found out I was a Christian. He just kind of said in one note to our class that he was glad that uh, most Christians are stopping believing in hell, that they don't really believe in hell anymore, which was a surprise to me at the time because at that point I wasn't aware of 
really any uh, Christians who were abandoning the doctrine of hell or compromising it. But you'll notice that as an atheist, he's saying that's a good thing that Christians are doing that. Because, you know, maybe an atheist would consider a Christian a fool for believing in God, but it brings up anger when the Christian will then say, and God is going to bring you into judgment for your rejection of him. So maybe they would tolerate what they just consider foolishness, you know, let the fools be off by themselves. But then when you start uh, bringing up the guilt of the person, that's where they begin having a problem. Hell is, of course, offensive to a world that thinks no one has the right to judge them. But we Christians need to have a different mindset and not think that it's a good thing that so many professing believers are abandoning the idea of hell or compromising on what the Bible teaches about it. That's not good. That's incredibly problematic. And I would say even goes down to compromising our gospel message and our gospel witness. But unfortunately, even among those who we look up to as our respected Bible teachers, there's great compromise even in that area. And for me, that my experience has proven that in terms of Bible college and my professors, who, although they are people that I respect very much and who have taught me a lot, given great insights and have great things to say about the text of Scripture in this area, I've seen a few problems. And they became most explicit in this one thing my college does called Theology Club. So about every other week, there would be a presenter or multiple presenters coming together on a particular subject related to the Bible, defending the view or debating it, and then opening it up to all the audience for questions. And the issue on this one night was hell. And three professors were brought in to give their takes on the subject and then to respond to questions that certain students had. And so what I'm going to do in this episode is after giving kind of a foundational definition to the three main views of hell so we have a framework for going forward is I'm going to respond to each of those professors. Not because everything they said was wrong and they actually did have a number of good things to say in that presentation, in that forum, but each professor, I believe, made one critical error in terms of the biblical doctrine of hell. And so I'll be responding to each of those in turn. And hopefully this can encourage you that as you encounter varying views and various ideas that people propagate about hell, you can now in turn think biblically and think critically about what they say without accepting it on the surface. So yes, first we're going to go through some definitions and then we'll get into what each professor said on that night. So, as I mentioned, there are three main views of hell and each of them have some nuance and there might be a slight twist uh, between person to person, if you want to put it that way. But essentially you can categorize them in these ways. And the first view would be universalism. So, right in the title, the idea of being universal, of course, it's holistic in scope, it's all-inclusive, and this view of hell teaches that, in the end, all will be saved. And so, again, there is some nuance to that, because some would say, okay, all humans will be saved. But some, like, again, uh, the friend that I mentioned in one of the opening stories, would uh, broaden that to include even the devil and the demons eventually will be reconciled and will live in heaven with God forever. So even they would be saved. Again, some would say there is a period of punishment before uh, these can enter heaven. So almost like a purgatory, except that no one actually goes to if or ever hell. Everyone would uh, go through some time of purging and then uh, be with God forever in the end. And so that punishment is viewed more as corrective. It's meant to uh, teach the wicked something, to get their act together before they uh, get into heaven. But those are a couple different uh, spins on the idea of universalism. But the essential idea is that all, especially referring to all humanity, will be saved in the end. So that's view one. View number two is called annihilationism. And so, 
again, the idea there, these titles are pretty self-explanatory, is that the wicked in the end will be annihilated. They'll be snuffed out, put out of existence. So no everlasting torment, but they'll just exit out of consciousness. And again, uh, some people would say that's, that either happens instantly at the judgment, but others would say that, again, there's this period of punishment, so they are, say, perhaps burned in fire uh, for some times, but eventually, you know, the fire kills them and they no longer exist. And so that's the idea of annihilationism. The third view, and the one I hold to, and the one that I'll argue for more towards the end of this podcast after I've responded to each of the professors, is this view called eternal conscious torment. And perhaps being coming less and less popular these days because it does cultivate the greatest sense of horror in regard to this doctrine. Uh, but essentially what it is, is again, as it sounds, eternal conscious torment. But the thing is, you have to take it all together. Uh, all of those elements have to be brought into one. Otherwise, you can argue that the other views hold them too. So for example, you can't just say that hell is eternal because annihilationists would say the same thing. That the punishment, in its effect at least, is eternal. The wicked are never brought into existence again. So we don't just say that hell is eternal, but we say it's eternal conscious torment, meaning that the wicked are conscious and they are tormented for the duration of eternity in hell. And they are never snuffed out, they are never uh, brought into heaven, they are never ultimately reconciled to God in the end. In the end, the punishment does last forever in this view. So, those are the three main views. Universalism, annihilationism, and then eternal conscious torment. Now, with those definitions in mind, we we can get into what the professors on this Night of Theology Club uh, argued for. And so, first of all, uh, the Old Testament professor at college, uh, her argument was somewhat for an annihilationism, not completely. She wasn't wholly sold on it. There were some holdbacks. But her main argument that she said was that the view of eternal conscious torment is inconsistent with God's character. So she can't see how uh, God, being a loving and just God, would allow the torment to go on for eternity. And so because of that, she leaned more towards annihilation, which the wicked are snuffed out. So while they are punished, they aren't suffering for all of eternity. Now, maybe you hear that and you're like, well, yeah, that that kind of sounds right. I can get behind that. I can, I do have, I think I myself have a problem with God's character uh, allowing the wicked to suffer in the flames of hell forever and ever. But let me put the issue to you this way. I think this is a problem of priorities. And what I mean by that is I think this professor made the mistake of elevating the realm of systematic theology over exegeting or interpreting the straightforward biblical text. Now, in terms of what systematic theology is, it's really just a way of systematizing various doctrines uh, about Christianity. And so, for example, in a systematic theology, you would have, here is all the doctrines about God and what we know about him. Here's all the doctrines about Christ and what we know about him. And so that's how systematic theology works. And it is based on the Bible, ultimately, at least it should be. But my point is that sometimes we have a tendency to approach the biblical text with a preconceived systematic theology that is actually inconsistent with what the Bible says. So what I mean here is that this professor is approaching the question of hell with a preconceived notion of what God's love means, what it can allow and what it cannot allow, and she's using this systematic theology notion to then answer the question of the biblical doctrine of hell. But what she hasn't done is look to the biblical text on God's love or on the issue of hell to see if, biblically speaking, the two actually are incompatible. 
So if she can justify this systematic notion of God's love, that it cannot allow hell, using the Bible, then okay. Her theology holds up, and so does her answer to the question of hell. But my problem is I don't think she's done that. And so just to give you another example, in case this isn't quite making sense yet, we have a concept of fairness in our society, and we tend to believe also as Christians, you know, God is fair. And I I do believe that God is fair, but it would be a problem if we imposed our concept of fairness onto God and then used that to uh, judge the straightforward biblical teaching on our own standard of what we consider fair. And so we see this the most, I think, in the doctrine of original sin. You know, according to scripture, we are held guilty on account of Adam's sin in the garden. Now, you might say, well, that's not fair. And because you think that's not fair, you're like, well, then that can be true because God is fair. We can't allow that. But that is what the Bible straightforwardly teaches in Romans chapter 5. If we deny that, then once again, we fall into this same error, the same fallacy of prioritizing our preconceived systematic notions over what the Bible actually says. And so in terms of this issue, we need to get our priorities straight. And I think you actually see this issue playing out in the annihilationist position again, because one of their arguments is that an eternal hell or the eternal suffering of the wicked is inconsistent with God being victorious in the end. But like, according to who? Whose standard of victory are you uh, defining this by? Once again, they're coming with this preconceived notion of victory and saying we need to interpret the text according to this instead of deriving our definition of God's victory from what the Bible says. And if you read the last three chapters of Revelation, there doesn't seem to be anything contradictory between the suffering of the wicked outside the gates of God's city and God's eternal victory in the end. And so we need to define these issues biblically and be careful that we're not interpreting the Bible through these preconceived human notions. Now, one other thing this professor said is that what also caused her to lean more towards annihilation is that there seems to be this inconsistency between Old Testament and New Testament depictions of the afterlife. But I we need to be clear in our wording here. We should acknowledge that fundamentally there is no actual inconsistency in the biblical text. Rather, we believe in this thing called progressive revelation. And what that simply means is that as you go through the Bible from Old to New Testament, it's not that we progress from an old to a new that does away with the old, but rather we progress from less clear to more clear. And so, just for example, in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, you can see hints of it in the Old Testament, now that we have the knowledge that we uh, do in terms of the revelation of the New Testament. But right there, see, it's made more clear once you get to the New Testament. That doctrine becomes much more explicit when you get to the text of the New Testament. And it's not that there's an inconsistency, The idea of a trinity is not inconsistent with the Old Testament, but rather, uh, over time, as new revelation was given in Scripture, this doctrine became more clear. And I believe we should view descriptions of the afterlife in the same way, that where the afterlife does appear less clear in the Old Testament, it is made much more explicit and clear when you come to the New Testament. But it's not inconsistent. I mean, Even Jesus, in discussing with the Sadducees, he pointed how the text of Exodus pointed to the resurrection. And so the idea that there will be a resurrection is not inconsistent with any of Scripture. And similarly, there is not a discrepancy between the descriptions of the afterlife in the old and new. It's a matter of less clear to more clear. But now someone might say, But doesn't the New Testament have conflicting images to describe hell? 
And now what they're referring to probably is the matter that hell is often referred to as a place of fire, but then it's alternatively also referred to as a place of darkness. And so they wonder, well, how can these two actually fit together? Now, while I would say that there is a way to take those images literally still and not see a discrepancy between the two to reconcile them, even if we say that those images aren't literal, that's a far cry from saying that therefore the suffering of the wicked is not eternal, which the Bible continually points to over and over again. And again, we'll look at some texts closer to the end of this episode. But really, even if you take those images as just metaphors, all that that shows is that there aren't words in the human tongue to convey the true horror of the place like hell. Arguing for opposing metaphors is a far cry from saying that the suffering of the wicked must therefore be temporary. But one other thing that the annihilationist does point to is the language of destruction that is used in scripture to describe the nature of hell. Now, interestingly enough, with the professor uh, at this theology club, this whole issue of destruction was actually the one thing keeping her away from annihilationism because she had a philosophical problem with the idea that humans who are created immortal could actually be put out of existence, could be destroyed. Personally, I kind of view that as a a weak argument, actually, against annihilationism. I think that if that's the only thing standing in your way, it won't take long before you get there because God is God. He can speak things into existence out of nothing. He can speak what is immortal into nothingness. So that's not my issue with annihilationism. But when they do point to this language of destruction, I believe it would be an error to equate that with our notion of obliteration, just because that's not really how the word is used in the Bible. Even just, for example, in terms of the parable of the wineskins, when uh, Jesus talks about how if you put new wine into old wineskins, then the wineskins will become ruined. And that word for ruined, again, is actually the same word in the Greek for destruction. And so it can convey this idea of ruin rather than obliteration into nothingness. But I think sometimes, at least, one of the reasons that the annihilationist wants to argue so ardently for the idea that the wicked will be annihilated, that they won't suffer forever, is because they're worried about what the idea of eternal conscious torment does to God's character. And there are annihilationists who will write in their books that believing in that view essentially makes God a sadist. But once again, let me urge you to define doctrines biblically and do not interpret them through your preconceived notions of who God is and how he should act when those are not derived from scripture directly. And let me tell you, that when you arrive at what the Bible clearly teaches, you don't need to defend God's character from God's truth. Let the text speak for itself and trust that the message was given from a good and righteous God. Now, do let me just respond to one more objection from the annihilationist before we move on to what the next professor said, and that is the issue... Again, it actually comes down to fairness because uh, the question is, well, if, you know, sins were committed in this world, in this life, which is by definition temporary, they're temporal sins, then how on earth could they merit or deserve eternal punishment? How is that fair? And well, this isn't a new issue. And the church father, Augustine, actually uh, responded to it in his book, The City of God. And I'm going to read you what he said about it, and I think that he uh, offers a rather insightful uh, look into this question, one that isn't the typical response, and it's not that other responses are bad, such as saying that, you know, God's majesty is eternal, and you've sinned against his eternal majesty, therefore uh, it's worthy of eternal sin. That is true in itself, but Augustine offers an angle that isn't often brought up, and that I think is worthy of discussion. And so I'm going to be Reading a quote to you from Augustine's The City of God, uh, book 21, chapter 11, if you want to look it up yourself later. And this is what he says. 
Now some of those adversaries against whose attacks we are defending the city of God may consider it unjust that in retribution for sins which, however serious, were certainly committed in a short space of time, each person should be condemned to eternal punishment. As if the justice of any law at any time consisted in its concern that the length of the punishment of the offender should equal to the length of time of the offense. Cicero tells us that there were eight types of punishment provided in the laws. Fines, imprisonment, flogging, equivalent damages, deprivation, exile, death, and slavery. Now, can any of those be confined within the brief space of time that would correspond to the swiftness of the misdeed, so that the punishment should be effected in the few moments that it takes to arrest the offender? Perhaps the fourth punishment, but no other. For equivalent damages is the procedure by which the offender suffers what he has inflicted, as prescribed in the law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It is in fact possible for a man to lose an eye by this severe act of vengeance in as short a time as it took him to put out the other man's eye by his heinous crime. But, to take another case, if it is thought reasonable that a man should be flogged for kissing another man's wife, then surely the action of a moment is punished by a flogging whose pain lasts a matter of hours. There is no comparison between the durations, and a fleeting pleasure is punished by a lasting pain. Then again, what of imprisonment? Are we to suppose that each offender is to be judged to deserve imprisonment for as long a time as it took to commit the offense for which he is confined? In fact, a slave is very justly punished by a term of years in fetters when he has attacked his master with a passing word or has inflicted on him a blow that is over in a swift second. While as for fines, deprivations, exile, and slavery, these are generally imposed without any prospect of pardon or relaxation. And in that case, do they not appear like eternal punishments by the standard of this mortal life? The only reason why they cannot be everlasting in this life, in which this punishment is inflicted, is itself is not extended into eternity. Yet the offenses which are punished by the longest possible retribution are committed in the shortest possible time. And no one has ever stood up to advance the proposal that the torments of the guilty should be limited to the time taken to commit homicide, adultery, sacrilege, or any of those crimes whose enormity is to be measured not by the length of time they take, but by the magnitude of their wickedness and impiety. And that's the end of the quote there. So in short, even in this life we don't judge the length of the punishment according to the length of time it took to engage in the misdeed. That's just an irrelevant question. And so now, again, the truth that it's God's eternal majesty that you've sinned against comes into play. Because the punishment is judged according to the enormity of the wickedness. And when you sin against the eternal majesty of God, that is indeed worthy of eternal punishment. So, that covers, at least on a brief basis, the issue of annihilation and what the first professor said on this night of theology club. Now, moving on to the next professor. First of all, we should say that all the professors did rightly deal with universalism, and so they uh, denied it. None of them were universalists, and they argued against it, noting that, historically speaking, it's always been a fringe view held by an individual here or there, but the standard view of the church has actually been eternal conscious torment. And they note that universalism, again the idea that all will be saved in the end, really stems from an underestimation of our own sin and of God's holiness. That's ultimately the root of a doctrine like that. And one other note with regard to 
universalism, especially uh, those who might argue for a corrective type of punishment rather than a retributive one. Uh, look at Revelation 20, where the devil is thrown into the abyss for a period of a thousand years, but then he's set loose. And what does he do? He immediately goes and deceives the nations again, and they come and march against God's camp. And so we have to recognize that the freedom of the wicked is oppression. When they are given freedom, ultimately they corrupt God's good order. And so God's justice in that chapter, God's justice in eternally confining the wicked, the devil, and his angels to the lake of fire is shown. God is just in doing that because when the wicked are given freedom, the outcome is oppression. But now, while the professors did, I believe, rightly deal with universalism and rightly respond to it biblically, they had notes uh, or maybe elements of universalism in their presentations nevertheless. And so this next professor, what he actually argued was that there will be more people in heaven than in hell. Which, I, of course, I'm sure all of us want. We would, of course, love it if that is true. But, again, is that what the Bible says? Well, first of all, what the text that this professor used to argue for that was Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, which talks about how there will be this great multitude of people from every tribe, nation, and language in heaven. And he noted that the Bible never describes a great multitude being in hell. It never uses that phrase to describe hell. But that, well, it's just straight up a terrible argument because it's an argument from silence. Just because the Bible doesn't use the same phrase to describe the people in hell as it does to describe the people in heaven has nothing to do with which place is going to be more populous. But rather, we have a rather clear text if you go to Matthew chapter 7 and read verses 13 through 14, and this is what the text says there. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So again, Jesus is being rather explicit and rather clear there that in terms of hell, the road that leads to death, many are on that road. Many find it, many, and thus you could say the majority end up there. But only a few find the road to life. It's not as populous. Now, when we got to the Q&A period of this theology club, this text was actually brought up by a student, thankfully. But all the professors said about it was that, you know, probably wasn't literal. Jesus may have just been being rhetorical to make a point. But of what? Was he trying to make them think that, oh no, hell is going to be way more populated, so i got to get my life in order when in fact that isn't actually true? Was Jesus creating the illusion that hell is easier to stumble to just to prod his hearers on to actually follow him and make the choice for life? But the illustration that he used wasn't in fact based on reality? Jesus doesn't need to use and certainly he doesn't use deceit in order to make his point or in order to exhort his followers to do something. Besides that issue, in the, a parallel text that essentially says the same thing in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is saying this thing about the narrow road in answer to the direct question of, will only a few be saved? And the answer Jesus essentially gives is yes. He says to strive Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, he says, that I tell you will not, will try to enter and will not be able to. So to say that heaven will be more populous than hell, especially on such a flimsy basis, is problematic in another way, in a number of ways, and it contra contradicts the clear and direct biblical text. Now, apart from that issue, this professor's presentation was really good, but that was that was a glaring problem. Now we can move on to 
the third and last professor and what he said. And this perhaps may be the the weirdest um, point of view to tackle, if you want to put it that way. And so this professor was uh, talking about how, you know, hell, it proceeds from a good God and hell can be considered good in the sense that it is good for the moral order. Sure, it's good for creation. It's true. It's good for God. It's good for the victims of evil. All true. But then he went on to say that hell is good even for the one undergoing punishment. So for the one suffering hell, he would say that hell is good even for them. And why? He said because it is better for them to, over time in this punishment, to come to a sense of remorse rather than for them to continue in the ghastly illusion of sinful pleasure. So essentially he's saying that hell is good for the wicked in this, because it changes their mindset. Now they finally come to see that their sin is bad and that and that's better than them continuing. I think they are uh, right in continuing their pursuit of sin. Now, once again, he's not a universalist. He actually was arguing for eternal conscious torment in his presentation. So when he says it's good for them to come to a sense of remorse, it's not because once they come to that new mindset that they will then be permitted to enter into heaven afterwards. It's just better throughout eternity to recognize your error even as you are uh, undergoing the punishment of the flames of hell. Really, I think one of the main issues in this idea is you're operating on a really poor definition of good. If What good is a new mindset if nothing about your situation changes? And besides, uh, the idea that hell would eventually soften someone so that they do come to that sense of remorse is uh, it runs against the grain of the narrative of scripture which constantly shows God's wrath hardening the wicked. I mean, I just mentioned in Revelation 20 how after the devil is released, he immediately goes and deceives the nations. All of Revelation really is about how God's wrath poured out on the world doesn't actually bring about repentance on the people. It hardens their hearts and causes them to curse God and his people. But I think that this professor's view also comes from a wrongful assumption that God's attribute of love is dependent upon us saying that hell has to be good even for the wicked in some way, that goodness and love has to be extended to those in hell even in some sense. But again, I just, I don't see how that lines up with the biblical text. For example, yes, here on earth, we know that God does love the wicked. And and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God's love for the wicked is shown in him causing the sun to rise on this planet and in him sending the the rain in its season so that even the wicked can enjoy the warmth of the sun and can enjoy the rain and get a good crop. They, they are fed and they aren't uh, put to death immediately even as they deserve. And so God's love is for the wicked is shown in that way. But you have to understand that in hell, there is no more sunrise. There is no more rain sent. These expressions of love are cut off because, according to scripture, the wicked are separated even from God's love. The reason that the promise in Romans 8 that we, who are God's children, will not be separated from God's love, the reason that promise uh, is so special is because that promise actually is unique to God's children. The wicked can't claim that promise that nothing, whether death or life, heaven angels, demons, nothing will separate me from the love of God. That promise isn't for the wicked. That promise is for God's children. That promise would mean very little if even those who are suffering in hell could hold on to it in some sense. When it comes to the Bible's language on the judgment, you see the constant refrain in scripture of Jesus saying to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's a very a uh, relational uh, phrase, if you want to say, or anti-relational, because Jesus is saying, I never knew you, like in a relational sense. These people never had a relationship with Jesus, and now they are banished from him forever. 
And you know, just to hammer home this point, this is what Psalm 11 verses 5 and 6 says. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, a scorching wind will be their lot. So again, this is what the text says, that ultimately in the end, the only lot of God that the wicked have is God's wrath. They are separated from his love and can experience nothing but his hatred for their vileness and for all their crimes. And this doesn't mean that God is not loving. It doesn't mean that God is not love. We don't get to say that if God isn't showing love to those in hell, that therefore his attribute is done away with. We know who God is on the basis of the biblical text. And again, you don't need to defend God's character from God's truth. Let's look at what the text says. Go with that, stand firm, and trust in him. But now there are yet a few other ways that some will try to, again, chalk up hell to being somewhat uh, good for the wicked, almost a sign of respect for them even. Uh, For example, perhaps you've heard the phrase, God doesn't send anyone to hell, people send themselves there. But, you know, I get the idea that essentially it is a person's sin that condemns them. It's just not right, biblically speaking, to say that God doesn't send anyone to hell. See, this is what Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 says. And it's uh, John the Baptist referring to Jesus. And he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice how both those actions of gathering the, gathering the wheat and burning the chaff are direct actions of Jesus. God does send people to hell. Jesus does cast people into hell. That's what the Bible says. And God's justice, fairness, and love is not threatened by saying that. Another similar line that you've also probably heard is taken from C.S. Lewis, actually. And he said that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And so the idea being conveyed there is that for the wicked, God is essentially giving them what they want in hell. They rejected God, they didn't want to be with him, and so, you know, God sends them away from him. And so, again, what is also being attempted to be conveyed in this is that God's love is being shown to the wicked in giving them what they want, essentially, not forcing them to be with him. But first of all, we should note that God giving them what they want is only true to a certain extent, because these people don't just want to be away from God. They also want to continue enjoying all their pleasures and all their sinful pursuits, which they will not be able to do anymore in hell. In hell, they will see that any good thing that they have, any good thing that they could enjoy, can only come from God. Being separated from God means no more enjoyment of any good thing. And so the the line is only true to a certain extent. But also, I'm hammering this point home over and over again because it's so important. God's love and justice are not contingent upon hell being a token of respect for the evildoer. So, please, I would urge you to do away with that assumption because it's unbiblical and unnecessary now maybe at this point you're saying okay but why does this matter why have i spent so much time trying to debunk all these errant notions of hell that i saw in these professors presentations well let me give two reasons before i get into my biblical defense of eternal conscious torment First of all, the reason I want to emphasize that hell really is horrible and that we shouldn't shortchange or water down any of the Bible's descriptions of it, make it sound better than it is in any way, is because fear is actually a legitimate tool in our gospel presentations. Some object to using the idea of hell because it's just 
fear-mongering, but you're arguing on completely human assumptions there. The Bible is not shy about using fear as a motive, at least initially, to spur someone on to seek God. You see that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, Don't fear those who kill the body, but rather fear God who can, after the body is killed, throw both your body and soul into hell. We see it in Paul's preaching in which he constantly brings up the reality of the judgment to come. And we read, actually, I think in Acts 24 it is, that Felix is afraid on account of it. You can look again at Hebrews chapter 29, or not chapter 29, chapter 10, verses 29 and 31. This is what the text says there. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so fear, when properly used, is a completely legitimate tool, and we don't want to shortchange our resources when we are presenting the gospel to people. We don't want to take away from the urgency of our message by watering down this doctrine. This doctrine is an important one, and as has often been said before, Jesus, more than anyone else in the Bible, spoke on this issue of hell in clear, cutting words. The other thing I want to note is that on the cross, Jesus isn't just suffering physically. It's not just the nails in his hands that are inflicting pain. He is bearing the full weight of God's wrath against our sin on our behalf. And so he is essentially taking on the penalty of hell in himself on that cross. And when we try to compromise on this doctrine of hell, we are undermining the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us. So that's why this issue is so important. That's why I've spent so much time trying to dismantle all these assumptions that, you know, maybe hell isn't as bad as we think. There's a light on the other, on the other side. We need to maintain the doctrine as Scripture presents it. And so in terms of how scripture does present it, let me just read you a few passages that I think highlight the reality of eternal conscious torment. And then let's use these texts to spur us on to reach people for the gospel and prevent them from going here. But the first passage is Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read verse 41 and then verse 46. And this is what Jesus says there. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so you'll note the parallel there. Just as the life we will have with our Savior is going to be eternal, so also is the punishment that these wicked will endure. It's not just the effect in terms of them being annihilated that lasts forever, but rather it's the punishment in itself that is said to endure for eternity. And so that's passage number one. Passage number two is Luke chapter 13, verse 28, and this is what Jesus says. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. And so this passage this passage in particular really highlights the conscious conscience oh, conscious awareness of the wicked when they are in their torments. They can see these things happening. They are weeping and gnashing teeth, so they are in torment and fully aware of it. And so that tied in parallel with the passages that describe the eternity of hell show that the holistic picture of scripture is one of eternal conscious torment. That's how this that's how the Bible depicts hell. And one last passage, 
and this is going to be in Revelation chapter 14. And this is what we read in verse 10 there. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So again, the passage there, no rest, day or night, the smoke rises forever and ever. They are tormented day and night. The Bible is clear there. This is eternal conscious torment. There is no relief, whether in terms of final reconciliation to God in the end, or being snuffed out into non-existence. That's not what the text says about hell. But now someone may ask, okay, if that's true, if the wicked really are going to be suffering forever and ever in hell, and obviously we would be aware of that, knowing the truth, then how can we who are in heaven have any joy knowing that that is their reality? And you know, I'm not sure that there is a clear-cut answer to that question. All I can really say is that what we might not understand right now, we can still have faith in yet and trust that more will be revealed to us as we trust in God and ultimately as we are brought into his presence, everything will become clear. And the scripture actually portrays God's people as praising him for his righteous judgment on the wicked nations, celebrating with him over the downfall of wicked Babylon in Revelation 18, for example. And so, you know, maybe even now we can't see how the downfall of the wicked is something that we can celebrate or something we can praise God over, but we can trust that God will give us new eyes to see his justice in all its beauty. Because his justice is good, it is beautiful. And in his judgment, his mercy to us is magnified. So whatever you've heard about hell, examine it biblically. Don't compromise what the Bible says on it. Don't shortchange it. Don't choose to ignore it because this topic, this reality is too important to put out of our minds. Let this doctrine and the reality of its horror, yes. Let it spur you on to urgency in your gospel proclamation. And now let's return. Thank you for listening to the Return to Truth podcast. If you're interested in getting updates on episodes, or if there's a question that's been put to you that you would like me to discuss on here, you can find me on Instagram at Return to Truth Podcast, or on Twitter at podcast underscore return. Until next time, let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth.